Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. A millennial. I feel like you probably guessed that, but I thought it was worth stating for the record because I think a lot about being a teenager as something that happened to me not that long ago, and realistically, that's not true anymore. For one thing, I have a dog and a wife and a house, and I'm in my mid-30s. But for another thing, I think about the way that when I was a teenager, I was mostly reading books for adults. I was reading a lot of tour books, to be honest. But there wasn't the young adult scene that there is now. Sure, we all grew up reading that one particular series by She Who Shall Not Be Named. But I look around at the scene today with awe and a little bit of envy, and certainly a whole host of wonder. It must be quite something to be a teen in the age of social media and climate collapse, but at least there are these incredible, incredible books that are being written that maybe will help folks make a little bit more sense of the world. And so I thought today we'd head back in time a little bit. Back in time for me, anyway. First up, let's head to Portland, Oregon. Bethany C. Morrow is an indie best-selling author who writes for both the adult and young adult markets. Her first novel, Mem, was one of my favorite books of 2018, and she's also the author of A Song Below Water and A Chorus Rises, which is not a sequel to A Song Below Water. As Bethany and I were getting to know each other, she was insistent that she thinks of it as a standalone book, which I think is a really canny way to think about these two books. Even though they share some of the same characters, they have different narrators and tell different stories. The narrator of A Chorus Rises is a black teen girl named Naima Bradshaw. She lives in Portland and she is an Iloko, a charismatic person gifted with a magical melody that people adore. She also is dealing with the fallout of the first book when she was sort of cast as the villain for exposing a siren to the entire world. She's grappling with what it means to be social media famous or infamous and also trying to figure out her family, herself, the truth about her magic and who she is. It's a fascinating, compelling look at who gets to tell what stories. And the first thing that I had to ask Bethany was what it was like to come back to this world and why she did it, not as a straight sequel, but instead picking up a different side of the story. Um, people being garbage in real life. Um, and so that was, you know, that's also the reason that A Song Below Water happened in the first place was because I was, you know, I was watching a black woman being abused and doxxed and everything else online for expressing an opinion. And that's not a rare thing. It literally happened to me the month after the book came out. And it was really disturbing. It was really disturbing because this was like, you know, a publishing trades fault. This was like 
Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews ran a story that's not even a story. Every time a white woman like decides not to publish a book because she realizes how much blowback she's going to get, it's not a story. I know that because I pulled a book from publication in 2016 and nobody ran an article about it. So the the breeding, the manufacturing of outrage and always citing a personal conversation, an individual conversation that I had on Twitter with the author before she decided to do this and then printing my name in the quote unquote story as though I both have the power to end white women's books. And also it took me more than 10 years to get an agent. It's, you know, it's just the divine mystery, just the divine mystery of how black women are all powerful and also have very specific misogynoirist oppressive uh, measures taken against them in every industry. And that resulted in a really violent attack all across all of my across all of the social media and being having it be published on Reddit and Parlay and First Republic and all of the all of the names that as soon as you hear them you know exactly who these people are and they care so much about YA literature <laughs> you know it's it's really the beating heart of their come on so <laughs> having that happen to me as that book was coming out was just a terrible sort of like poetic justice that I did not need. I didn't need to ever prove to people, hey, this really happens because my audience is Black teenage girls. For when I write YA, my audience is Black teenage girls. Everybody can read it. I do what you want. Go with God. But obviously the person that I'm writing to is a teenage Black girl and she already knows this is real. So if you ever wonder if I'm trying to prove something to you in my work, I'm absolutely not because I'm not thinking about you. So that was the reason that I wrote A Song Below Water. And then sadly, the reason that I wrote A Chorus Rises was because the early reads of the book were so, you know, so zealously in love with Tavia, so supportive of Effie. And also, I cannot stand Naima and oh my gosh I hate her she's the antagonist she's the villain and I was like oh you think that I wrote a book about white supremacy and misogynoir and the antagonist is a 16 year old black girl (laughs) like beloved just like think please. So, and I'm not saying everybody has to like everyone. And that's what people always try to hide behind is like, oh, I just didn't like this individual person. And yet the language that you use and the caustic nature of it echoes what I socio-historically experience as misogynoir that always comes before some sort of violence. So no, sorry, you don't, you don't get to be like, oh, it was just a personality thing. The issue is that it's really easy for society to do the exceptional tokenist, like, okay, I love these girls and they're the perfect victim. And they did everything right. And I don't have space to like any additional black girls, particularly magical ones. So of course I have to hate Naima. A big reason that I say it couldn't possibly be a sequel is because I don't write it as though Tavia wrote a book Mm -hmm. about Naima. I I wrote it as Naima talking about Naima. And I've said to people, if you meet someone in someone else's story, you have not met them yet. So the fact that people would expect these books to be more similar than they are, is kind of ridiculous to me because it really lets you know that like Western culture is not accustomed to actual varying narratives. They're used to like cookie cutter, like, okay, this is the story. This is the arc of the story. These are the beats of a story. And then you just, Mm -hmm. you swap out people. That's not realistic. I even had people say like, well, it's it's weird because your opinion seems to change from what it was in A Song Below Water. And I'm like, it's two separate people. Why would I write Naima's story just to sort of like soften it or, or make it placate somebody who who liked Tavia? I'm, I'm writing Naima's story because Naima 
deserves to be the last word on who Naima is versus someone else. And that's so necessary, number one, to give Black girls, because if representation is going to be is going to continue to be as restricted as it is. It's not representation. It's basically telling you, here's the one thing that you can be. And that's wildly inappropriate, but it's also, it's dehumanizing. It's it's like every other Black person in my story has to be a villain. Like, every, yeah. right? Like, that, that trying to pluck people out of their Blackness and set it in a more palatable white space. And it was the whole reason why I had two protagonists in the first book, because I'm not interested in doing that only one Black girl story, even if that's even if that's realistic for a lot of people, even if that's sadly what a lot of us have experienced in primarily white settings. Representation is also aspirational. I have no interest in writing a bunch of Black kids who have to go through exactly what I went through. Like, why would I yeah. do that to someone? Um, the, the biggest reason I say that they're not sequels is because the perspective shift is so significant, even down to the language. Naima is a loco. And in the first book, a loco is pluralized with an S and it's decapitalized. And in A Chorus Rises, a loco is capitalized and it's the same singular and plural. And of course, publishing with the same house, it's like, oh, but if this is a book in the same series, like, shouldn't it match. And I'm like, not if the speaker Mm -hmm. is different. You talk to someone about their own community and they correct you on how it's supposed to be. This happened. uh, I mean, there's, if you look up my tweets, there was a time because, because I had just gotten out of, um, no, I had just seen an interview before it was going to be published. And I wrote back and was like, Hey, great. Um, anytime you're quoting me, capitalize black. And they were like, Oh, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying and I would love to, but that our style guide dictates. Style guides. Listen, so, so I, so I tweeted, I immediately went and I love doing this because you know, I'm talking about you. Um, (laughs) I immediately went, but I'm not only talking about you. And that's the only reason I don't always call people out by name is because you're not the only idiot. So I immediately went to Twitter and was like, if I tell you to capitalize black and you ever try to hide behind the shield of style guides to explain why you have a right to dehumanize me, lose my contact information. Like never speak to me again. Yeah. Please understand that we are enemies now. Um, So I did that in A Chorus Rises because if Naima's telling her own story and she is a loco, do you think that she's going to decapitalize a loco because the person in front of her decapitalized it? Like, come on. Oh my God, I love this so much. And I don't know, to me as a reader, as an aspiring writer, like there's something so thrilling about the idea of telling stories from different points of view. And it feels like it's freeing in a way, to be able to look at a moment from one perspective and then look at it from somebody else's perspective and to be able to say, these are two equally valid perspectives because that's the way that these people experienced this moment. I got such a thrill out of each time Naima was looking at something and sort of being like, yeah, that shit that happened in the last book, let me tell you why that's not true. Right. And then and then to see it play out uh, the one of I mean there are so many heartbreaking moments in both of these books but when the movie comes out there were like meta layers about representation yeah. that you were weaving into the book I guess this is really just a world building question what decisions were you making where you really wanted things to line up with our world things where you knew okay I'm going to shift this a little bit by introducing Oloko and Sirens what were the decisions like as you were creating the world 
So, and I've said this so many times, like I am part of a tradition. So this to me is the normal way to show a truth that the contemporary world that I live in denies and lies about. So it is the exact same amount of world building that I do in any story revolving around Black people, because white people specifically do not live in reality. Um, You know this because they think things are debatable that are not. You know, it's like, let's argue over whether the United States of America is a racist country. There's nothing to argue about. It's there's reasons that I don't get into certain conversations because it's like there's literally not a conversation. And I don't want to encourage you to think that I'm going to, you know, this is the biggest thing that's the same about me and Naima. I'm not going to join you in your delusion, like even to even to, quote unquote, prove something. I don't have to prove to you. You know this. You already know this. Denying racism is part of the racism. So when I'm world building and, and this is a, a tradition that black Americans specifically have utilized in all of literature is using speculative aspects to underline and magnify reality, putting, you know, it's basically using it as a magnifying glass. So I wasn't sort of like deciding something wasn't going to line. This is all about the world we live in. This is this is a completely real story. Both of them, they are based entirely in reality. I am simply using something that Black American creatives have always done, which is understanding that you don't see reality. You don't understand reality. You don't know what reality is. And if you actually had to live my lived experience in this same country that we both live in, you would experience it as speculative. Like you would experience it as, you know, something additional to the world that you, that you've been taught to see. So world building is always equally complex and equally natural, I think, to, to black writers, because I do this in my everyday life. That doesn't mean I'm not doing it. It means I'm actually better at it because I, because, and that's the thing is like, people will either try to then diminish it because it's like, oh, black Americans have always done this. They've always used, so that must mean it's easier for them. Like just, you know, every time we're good at something, now suddenly it's like an innate thing that like, please. But my point is when I wrote uh, So Many Beginnings, which is the Little Women um, remix that comes out in September and it is historical fiction, it is the same level of world building as A Course Rises. Um, And it's literally talking about historically documented and accurate events and times in our history. But because they have been so intentionally, our history has been intentionally disrupted, intentionally buried and denied. And so when I talk about it, I have to do the same amount of world building that somebody writing a fantasy would have to do. Because you have intentionally been lied to, and there's also that intentional denial. So I have to actually build the world you live in for you. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when you look at like any white, very popular book or, or series or movie or anything, almost all of them are fantastical. Number one, because it's always a white protagonist. Number two, because they're always surrounded almost entirely by white people. No matter where they are in the country, it's false. It's fiction. Small towns that are 100% white that don't talk about the intentionality of a lily white, unnaturally lily white small town. If you don't deal with why this town is lily white, this is fantasy. Yeah. If you, if you make a movie about Appalachia and there's only white people, that's fantasy. That's not real life. That's not what it looks like. That's not who lives there. So it's interesting because in order for me to write about reality, I have to world build for potentially for readers who have no understanding of what they're looking at, have no understanding of the world they live in and have been 
you know, I always say like white supremacy, the people who should be maddest at white supremacy are white people because you have the arrested development. Yeah. It should be startling to people. Like you should be upset about this. The things that you don't understand, the common sense things that you don't understand because you were trained not to understand them for the purpose of being quote unquote superior. Uh, so you're just like worse at understanding reality is like, I don't know why people are more upset about that. I would be. Yeah. This is like the greatest blow against the entire concept of genre and the ways in which things are bucketed and forced to be one thing or another, or maybe if you're lucky, like it's a slash. And it does, you're absolutely right. That idea that so many of the major cultural touchstones in my life, certainly that I would be like, oh, that's realism or whatever. No, it's not. It's fantasy. It's absolutely not. It's an, it's an intentionally, it's an intentionally curated and, and or orchestrated event or place. Like I live, I live on the border because I came down from Montreal so that my son could go to American high school. And so I live in an actual village on the border and even that, I'm the only completely, or I should say like mono-ethnic appearing Black woman in this village, not in the entire area, but in this village, right? But if you look at the census from last year and then 100 years before, there were more Black people here 100 years ago. Wow. That's how you know that something happened to reduce and consistently, you know, keep this area looking the way that it does now. So if you're so if it were realism, so somebody's like, see, so it's okay to write a story about like a, a lily white town. If you're going to talk about how you're intentionally keeping it that way, mm-hmm. there's something active going on. There's something that historically happened, and there's something active going on. So if you don't deal with those things, you're lying. Like that's not real. That's not reality. And I think that a lot of times those properties and and white artists in general just think we don't have. To, I don't have to deal with race, and that's what makes my work better. But your work is always a lie then. Because race is something you intentionally did. You intentionally created race. I am black because you wanted to be white. So it's a social cast. It's not, it's not real. It's right. not an actual like, biological thing, right? So you don't actually get to not deal with race because race is a reality that you created and that you propagated and that you literally created laws to, to keep in place. So if you don't deal with that, your work is lying. Your work is a lie. So speaking of people who are really good at picking up on lies, what was it like writing teenagers? Because all of these teenagers are, they're all so real. I feel like its it can be a really tough thing. So often there's, you know, something that gets lost in the translation as we grow up. You know, I see it a little bit even in myself as I'm looking at TikTok and I'm like, fuck, I don't understand how this works. And now I feel so old. But the way in which you capture what it's like to be a teenager, what it's like to have new places on the internet to go to. What was, what was it like stepping back into that mindset? I think that I have always felt, and this might be actually just like common to other people too, but I've always felt like the same person. Um, and therefore I felt very out of touch with a lot of my peer group until I got older. My son, I see is having, is having the same experience. And I tell him, don't worry, you'll meet people who you understand like in university or after. Um, <laughs> It just isn't going to happen before then. And it, and it didn't. The thing that I try to do, I think you would see my disconnect more if I try to talk about specific things that current teenagers are doing in this culture. And the fact that I don't try to do that is, is the forgiving part. Because I think when people try to get too specific, this is when you end up with YA writers my age. I'm 38 years old. You find that a lot of YA books end up being about that one 
teenager who just loves Journey. Uh-huh. Or like that one teenager who's actually like super obsessed with old movies. <laughs> and by old movies, I mean movies from when the author was a child. Mm-hmm. Like so so what I what I try to do is avoid, first of all, self-insert, like try to avoid making these teenagers that are just me, basically. But also, you know, my son just did this gesture today that I was like, I have literally never seen that before. I've never heard of that before. I, I don't even I don't even understand the context. Like he had explained the entire thing to me. And I was like, if I tried to be too specific, I would completely fail. Like if I try to be too era specific. And that's why I don't put like real songs and real social media and all that kind of stuff in my YA Number one, because it's it dates it. Like, you know, if I were writing YA, you know, when I started, I'm pretty sure MySpace was still a thing. So like, you know, then that would be like, oh, I, I nailed it. Okay, but it, it changes so fast. There, there are aspects of society, of our culture that change really quickly. And then there are aspects that don't change. Mm-hmm. I think the key to writing across categories, because I write for adult and young adult, is to focus on the aspects of humanity that don't change. And and if you need to, just make up the stuff that would change so that even the people reading it now are like, oh, this is clearly this is clearly fake. And if it reflects something that they actually use, okay, great. But the next generation isn't going to see it and be like, that's not a thing. Like, what are you talking about? So um, I try not to focus on the aesthetic. I try not to, you know, I don't, I don't talk a lot about clothing styles and all that kind of stuff and get into the minutia because I'm, I'm writing characters, whether I write adult or young adult, I'm very focused on character. I'm very focused on interpersonal relationships and that sort of thing in a lot of ways is quite consistent. And it's more about just being observant, just being a a hyper observant person than trying to nail down a moment in time, which is kind of useless, except for the person, you know, who's literally experiencing it right now. Um, And then, of course, I always have my son reading my work, you know, and he and because I never try to reference any particular thing, he doesn't even notice that I don't reference anything. You're right. I never missed those things. But I always had a very vivid sense of time and space and be and right. Just ways not to limit your readership, basically, by being too culturally specific. There's another moment that, you know, it's it is both a universally resonant thing and also so deeply specific to what Naima is going through in this book where I think it's about a third of the way through and I highlighted it and I was reading on my Kindle and I put uh, an old school like emoticon heart because she just says family is weird and there's so much contained into that single (laughs) three word sentence. I I would just love to hear you talk about writing the the, the inter-family stuff and the way that family is so beautifully resonant in this book. Um, I don't even know how to talk about it necessarily. It's just... I was really excited that the book was going to take place in the summer because the summer for me, a lot of times has meant family reunion mm-hmm. and I have a very large family. I have eight siblings and then my father has seven siblings. And so, you know, and, and so when we do, when we do a family reunion, it's not just, I won't say my maiden name, but like, it's not just that it's not just that branch. It's it literally, you have to go like two or three steps higher yeah. and say, okay, this is the descendants of like Frank and Catherine, everybody who, who falls, you know, who's a descendant of, of those two people will be at this family reunion and how quickly you become comfortable 
I don't know because it's, and we have a lot of, we have a lot of uh, adoption and stuff in, in my family. And so it's, it's not a biological thing. It's just family sort of, again, the divine mystery of just family is how quickly you become comfortable in these settings um, and our, we cheat because we, you just say cousin. If you don't know how you're related to somebody, you just say cousin. <laughs> That's actually why I loved Naima realizing the power and the necessity and like the um, the usefulness of. And you think, okay, if, if the source of power is ans- is the ancestor spirits, what would they be focused on? What would their priority be? And this sense of longing and belonging. And so her knowing exactly who everyone is. I also come from a family that's very into genealogy. So I do know very specific, you know, things about, you know, people in the 1800s or whatever. So just Naima being able to do that because of this ancestral chorus that's within her giving her that information and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have meant anything if it didn't mean anything to her Mm -hmm. so experiencing it with her and why especially as somebody who has really been maybe had the wrong priorities her her family in particular and like leaving the family for the purpose of becoming a loco and and making sure that she had this loco experience when she comes initially there is that you know they call her sheba there's the and i love nicknames our family has just nicknames matter way more than your actual name. Uh-huh. So her feeling like an outsider and then knowing everyone and everything about everyone and why people look the way they do and who they actually look like versus who, you know, I thought about if I, if I had that superpower at, at family reunions, A, I would be extremely popular because we care so much about genealogy, <laughs> but just also the calm, just the I don't know. There's family is weird and you love them and they also get under your skin more than anybody else because they remember everything. And if you have, if you feel too strong about anything in the present, it could be 20 years later, but it's like, Oh, there's remember when Bethany did. And I'm like, Oh my God, I I hate you guys so much. Um, But it's also, you know, these people who know and remember things that you did when you were five years old. (laughs) I like the comfort of that. And the, I don't know, just, the fact that you're remembered, the fact that you're always, even if it's stuff you wish they would get over, um, the fact that somebody always remembers uh, is what makes family so amazing. And that goes for found family as well, because obviously in the first book, what we're dealing with primarily is found family, uh, which is extremely important to me and my family as well. So I wanted to make sure that that didn't contradict, that it wasn't like, okay, now we're talking to local, this only goes for blood relatives. And it's like, no, that's no. <laughs> um, whoever your family is, this this ability would apply. I really love that. I just got choked up hearing you talk about that. Just thinking about, yeah, that shit that they know and remember everything, both your found family and your real family. And it's like, well, yeah. oh, I love you guys anyway, you know? Yeah, I love you. And can you please fucking drop it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like... And now let's head to Nova City, where superheroes fight crime and teenagers fight their parents. Sounds just like where I grew up. T.J. Klune is the New York Times bestselling author of The House in the Cerulean Sea and a whole host of other books. He has been publishing for 10 years this month, or, well, August 2021. He was first on the indie scene, and now, as he puts it, he's jumped up to the big leagues at Tor, and his books are about queer people from all walks of life who, regardless of genre, get their happy endings no matter what. 
His latest book, Flashfire, is the second book in a trilogy that began with The Extraordinaries, and it follows the further adventures of Nick, a queer teenager with ADHD whose boyfriend just so happens to be a superhero. As though it wasn't hard enough to pass physics and get ready for the prom, right? These books were always going to be about the kids first and superheroes second. It was going to be about fandom. It was going to be about a session with superheroes, but I was never going to reach the point when the book became solely about superheroes because I, I, I wanted these to be grounded, to be realistic, even if there's people who can create fire or move shadows or fly, anything like that. Lord knows I love the Marvel movies. Lord knows I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even when all of a sudden aliens are coming down and destroying New York and no, there's no real repercussions of. <laughs> and so I, 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 I was cognizant of that fact because I wanted, I wanted to, to be not necessarily self-aware, but aware of the fact that superheroes are ridiculous. <laughs> they're, 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 they're vigilantes in brightly colored costumes who will go around and either fight crime or cause crime. And that's, that's stupid. That is just a stupid thing that I love so much. And shout out to Wolverine because he was my queer awakening. I wanted it to be grounded and and to be about the kids first as opposed to all of a sudden you're thrown into a situation where people can fly and there's superheroes because i loved the idea particularly in the extraordinaries of of the obsession of someone being so enamored by by the superheroes that he wants to write vaguely disguised self-insert fan fiction about them what is it like not just writing for teens but writing teens at reading these books and seeing these teenagers who you're writing, and I'm like, I this actually kind of feels like what teenagers are like right now in a way that really made me happy. What was it like being in that headspace? The biggest thing I wanted to do with these books was to avoid making a, a coming out narrative because, you know, there are much greater authors than I have written coming out books. And the one thing I wanted to, to focus on with that is that coming out isn't the end of a story. It, it, queer people for their entire lives, anytime that they meet someone new is potentially someone they have to come out to. So a coming out book or a coming out narrative in a trope like that isn't the be all and end all. I wanted to tell a story of queer kids who were already out, who already went through that, who are accepted by their families and their peers, and nobody gives a shit about <laughs> the fact that they're queer. In these books, maybe it's a little unrealistic, but in these books, there's no homophobia. There's no, there's no bigotry when it comes to the queerness of the characters. That doesn't mean it doesn't touch on other social justice issues. But I, I made it a point not to write a coming out story because and I hate how old I am when it makes me feel when I say this, but <laughs> kids these days are much savvier. They have tools that we didn't get to have, that I didn't get to have being 15, 16 years old in the late 90s. I didn't get to have, you know, social media to to reach out to other people. I grew up in a very poor, very rural area of Oregon where me being the loudmouth, effeminate queer kid with ADHD did not go over well. And I wanted to write a world where shit like that doesn't matter, that you do, that it doesn't matter, and that these queer kids have bigger things to worry about than, than people hating them for who they love. I so deeply admire and appreciate that. And I, I can't think of too many other authors who've done something like this or if they have handled it with the kind of grace and care and intention that you did, which is sort of responding in real time to events that were happening in the world between when The Extraordinaries came out and when Flashfire went to print. And I know that you wrote about it on your website, but the, the ways in which 
reading that first book last summer, there was sort of a like, ooh, the storyline with Nick's dad doesn't quite land how you want it to. Right. And then the way that you thoughtfully and full of care addressed it in the new book, I, God, I just admired it so much. And I would love to hear you talk about how you navigated that. Yeah. So for anybody who's listening to this, who does, who's never seen me before, I'm a white dude. I want to make sure that that's clear. So in the first book, when I was writing it, I wrote this book back in 2017 and I wasn't thinking in terms of social justice issues. I wasn't thinking in terms of police brutality. And that shows my privilege. That shows the blinders that, that people wear through life that they may not even realize they're wearing. When I was writing the first book, all I was thinking about necessarily was comic tropes comic tropes of the police being on one side of the law and superheroes being on the other, a sort of vigilanteism. And when the first book came out last summer, it was right in the middle of the racial reckoning that's occurring in the United States. And so I will admit that it was a little shocking to, to you know, I'm thinking, I'm just write a YA book. You know, it's just a YA book about a kid who wants to be a superhero. His dad happens to be a cop. And I was thinking of interesting ways down the road that that could play into it. It was never my intention to make the book sound like it was a pro-police book. It was humbling too, because again, I have that privilege. I have those blinders on and to have readers that have been with me for a while saying, yeah, you kind of missed the mark when it came to this aspect of it. It was transformative and it needed to be because I can either continue on blissfully as I had been, or I could have a hard conversation with myself about the powers that word has, the words have, and the fact that people take what I say and write to heart. They, they see what kind of a person I am. So I was in the very fortunate position that Flashfire was completed, but had not yet been edited. So I was in the very fortunate position that I was able to respond in real time. But when I did that with Flashfire, I couldn't just go into it and change a couple of lines and, and have that be it, a, basically an acknowledgement of, yeah, I hear you, what you said, because that's lip service. And that, that would bug the hell out of me yeah. to, to just pay lip service. So I worked my butt off just focusing on the policing aspect of the book and what I felt my characters would actually respond to and what they would be like, because I didn't want it to be out of the blue. It needed to be organic to the narrative. It needed to fit with this world, not all of a sudden have this very special episode kind of a feel to a chapter. And not only that, I had to make so it wasn't lip service and that it was a through line for the entire book. And it stays that way in book three. I just don't, I don't, I don't cut it off at the end of book two. In book three, that continues. And it was important for me to do that because words have power and I need to, to make sure that what I'm putting out there is dictating how I really feel as opposed to just taking tropes into consideration. So Flashfire is very upfront about, about the issues of police brutality and, and policing in America. And it does bring Nick's father, Aaron Bell, to task for what he did. And there are some very hard conversations, some very uncomfortable conversations that occur in the book that were uncomfortable for me to write. But again, that was me in the process of removing my blinders so I could do right by these characters that I love so much. There's a line in Flashfire that I'm going to read real quick because it makes me think of what you're talking about, both in terms of you as a writer, but also in terms of the community that has kind of sprung up around you as your fans, as the people who you're influencing. 
It's our responsibility as the token queer kids to make sure everyone is slightly uncomfortable to the point where they'll need to have an honest conversation with themselves about their biases. I love like how self-aware that is in some ways, but also how it feels like a lot of people reading that moment were probably like, yeah, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah. I see you as the author, both writing a cohesive story that, that stands on its own as a story, but also talking to your readers like they're your friends or like they're just like they're people who you're just talking to as opposed to talking down to them or talking aside to them. Yeah, it's important to do that because, I mean, let's face it, YA is geared towards young adults. That doesn't mean everybody that reads YA is is um, a young adult and anybody can read what they want. But when I write YA, I'm thinking about 15, 16, 17 year olds who might be reading this book. And if I pander or if I come off as disingenuous, they're going to know like that. They're going to absolutely be able to rip that to shreds, rightly so, because pandering is, it just makes my skin crawl. I just, I can't, I can't <laughs> do that. I, when I write something like that, that especially that specific, that uh, wording that you just read, I mean that with all of my heart. I absolutely mean that. And not only am I shining a light on people who do such things, I'm also shining it back on myself because let's be frank, I have my own biases that I need to, that I needed to dismantle. And something I would like to, to shout out real quick, um, because I think it's important to bring it up is I took a course through the University of Colorado Boulder online. It's called, it was called anti-racism. And I took that before I started working on the edits for Flashfire because I needed to educate myself. I needed to, if I was going to be telling a story that addressed police brutality in such a way that I needed to make sure that I was doing everything in, within my power to learn about what that meant from the people that it affected. Because again, I have privilege due to my whiteness and, you know, I don't, I will never know what that's like. Yeah. So I took this course with, with these two professors, Sean O'Neill and Jennifer Ho, that was illuminating, humbling, and, and transformational. And everybody, every white person should be taking stuff like this just so they can learn and, and try to be a better ally and be a better person. And that was something that I had to do, that I needed to do for myself, for my readers, and for these characters. Because when the criticism of The Extraordinaries came out, it was deserved. It was absolutely deserved. And I could have either gotten defensive or I could have taken it and learned from it and grown from it. And I'm not going to lie, my initial reaction was to be slightly defensive because I was sitting there thinking, you're missing the point of the story. But then I sat there and thought, are they really? Are they yeah. really missing or am I missing the point of the story? So I did everything I could to prepare because it's important to me. When, when, when I tackle something like this, I go all in. Because it's, I, I don't do anything by half measures. I never have and I never will. <laughs> it shows, I mean, so much of your work, I am not the only person to say this and I wish I had a more original way to say it, but so much of your work is like, it's like a big hug. There are, there are other authors who write wonderful things that when I read them, I'm getting some of that. Like Terry Pratchett is somebody who I'm like, ooh, those, those books are a yes, hug to me. Absolutely. But it, it doesn't always feel like it's a hug from Sir Terry in a way that your books you are so present in your books. And before we press record, your your book that's coming out this fall, Under the Whispering Door, you mentioned something about really putting a lot of yourself into that book. And I, I want you to talk about that a little bit, if you will, but I also just, in general, would love to hear you talk about what it's like to put so much of yourself onto the page. It can be difficult. I think I think it's important for, for listeners to understand that that every author puts a piece of themselves in, in every story that they write. I mean, that's just, 
part and parcel with with being a creator and and i think more specifically when it comes to authors that 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 is is an absolute truth under the whispering door is probably the most that i've ever done that it is a story that is basically my version of a christmas carol with with the lead character wallace being Ebenezer Scrooge. In A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is visited by three spirits who show him what a shitty person he was. And by the end of the book, he's like, oh my God, I see what a bad person I am. Now I will be better. And I always thought, you know, <laughs> not to disparage Charles Dickens in any way, shape or form, that Scrooge got off kind of easy with that because it never showed him doing the work. And so I I wanted to write a different version where instead of a, a, a character like Scrooge meeting three spirits, what would happen if a character like Scrooge died and became a ghost himself, knowing there was nothing he could do to change what he'd done in life? The journey that he goes through when he's taken from his funeral by a reaper named May, he's taken to a tea shop in the middle of nowhere, in the mountains, in the woods, where he meets Hugo, who is the owner of the tea shop and also acts as a ferryman. Wallace being Wallace does not want to go. He wants to stay and he wants to find a loophole. He wants to be sent back. And he's told no, that there's there's no possible way for her to do that. So instead of crossing over, he decides to stay in this tea shop. And his journey at that point is a journey of growth. It is a journey of betterment. Is it a journey of realizing what a selfish life looks like and what it means to give and without expecting anything in return. And I spent so much time on this, so much time trying to get Wallace's narrative arc correct because I wanted to show the work it took to become a better person, not a good person, but a better person, because I think it's important that we have that distinction. But this book was extraordinarily difficult for me to write. Um, we all know grief. Grief affects everyone differently. It's it's not the same for, for everyone. No two people probably experience grief the same way. But I think that there is this power in grief. There is a catharsis in grief. The House Under the Cerulean Sea was, was called by many, which I love, a hug in the form of a book. Under the Whispering Door isn't necessarily a hug. I think it's more of a shoulder to cry on, of a friend who will listen, who will, who will take what you're saying and, and not interrupt, interject, but help you to get it all out and, and to process your grief. And that's how it was for me. I'm going to go, I'm going to keep this as general as possible, but if, um, back in 2013, my life was perfect and wonderful. I was engaged to the most wonderful man who has ever lived, and our lives were on track to become the rest of our lives. We had gotten our fairy tale happy ending until one day he collapsed in our house, and life after that never became the same. There was months and months of, of tests and hospitals and surgeries that ultimately led to his passing. And I was in such a dark and toxic place through all of that and after it. And I don't know that I ever truly processed what that did to me, the, the raising of my entire world to its foundations. I, I don't know that I completely understood just how much that destroyed me. Oh, I went on. I wrote other books. But this was the first time in Under the Whispering Door that I addressed my grief specifically. Not necessarily, it's not, it's not on the page as TJ Klune is going through this and this is how he's feeling right at the moment. But it was me hoping 
that no matter what happens after we close our eyes for the last time, that there will be something there waiting for us, that there is hope, that there is a future that is something that we, that is unknowable, that this just isn't it, that once we, once we pass that, that that's all there is. I refuse to believe that even if I don't necessarily know what that means. So under the whispering door was my hope and my wish to the universe about what comes next. And at the same time, it allowed me to find the center of my grief and process it. And as I said before, there is a catharsis in grief. There is. And I found that catharsis and it was painful and it was destructive. But by the time I worked myself through it, I felt relief like I haven't felt in years. And so under the whispering door makes me nervous because it is so intensely personal for me and not everyone will understand that. A reader has a right to have any opinion on a book they want. They, If they purchased the book or got it by some other legal means, they can have any opinion they want. And usually I'm totally fine with that. I, 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 reviews are for readers, whatever, that, that they're not for me. But with this one, I have to take this extra step to divorce myself from the book itself because my grief will not be understood by some. And this, the grief of this book will not be understood by some. And I understand that, but I still have to kind of prepare myself for that. Well, thank you. It, 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 he, he ended up passing away in 2016. So I've had, I've had some time and, you know, I, I wrote under the whispering door in 2019 and, you know, I've, I've found myself in a, in a better place because of the time I was able to spend with this book and the time I was able to focus on the memories of what I had and what I lost. Which, by the way, if anybody listening to this ever goes through something similar or is going through something similar, go to therapy. Please go to therapy. Reach out to a, 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 any kind of psychiatrist, psychologist, a, a licensed clinical social worker. Do what I did not do, what I should have done right away, and because that's what they're there for. And I'm in, I'm in therapy now. I've been in therapy for a few years, and it, it is something that I should have, I wish I had done for myself much sooner. So if you've ever, ever going through something like what I had gone through, ask for help because there are people out there willing to help. And, and if you have friends that are in a similar position that deal with depression, anxiety, panic disorders, any, and a whole matter of things, check in with them because depression tends to rob you of your voice. Before I drop you all off for the end of this week's episode, I've been thinking a lot about therapy. Not just because TJ and I were talking about it, but because it has become something that I don't know how I could live without. And I really, really wish that it had been something that I could have found as a teenager. I thought it would be interesting to talk to somebody who is working with teens today. I didn't know anybody off the top of my head, so I did what you should do when you're looking for a therapist, which is I asked around for a recommendation, which led me to Naomi Weens. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, and we spoke for a little while about what it's like to work with teenagers and the things that teenagers are teaching her. There's no like psychological jargon that is going to like win a teen over. <laughs> there is an element of just straight talk and realness of, of your personhood coming into the space too. And I think 
that's the best kind of work that happens with people at this age is just to be another person, not getting in their head, just being with. And really, I mean, the act of being with is sort of the most revolutionary act I think that can happen for somebody at that age, because there is a sense of abandonment. Everybody expects you to be doing all the things like adulting already, but you don't feel prepared to adult. And so um, I often feel this with parents, right? How do I, like, how do I support them right now? And this idea of just still being with them in the muddy, hard parts of, I don't want you, get away from me, let me do my own thing. And also don't leave me. What do you, what do you think you're doing leaving me alone? So the act of just being with in that space, I think is what makes therapy work. I, I feel like I and colleagues were, were watching teens kind of be so lost in the expectation of what it is to be. You know, there's this odd thing of we expect them to be totally autonomous and adult-like, that or we expect nothing. And I think there's something very devastating about that, about expecting so much or so little and trying to navigate the in-between of just being alive in this time. When I think about being a teen, it's like this idea of what stories are accessible to me What have I learned about? And I think the more we've seen of teens who have access to a larger variety of stories, we see that they have more freedom to choose something that fits them. Where those of us who maybe didn't have access to such variety end up finding that variety later in life and having the kind of existential issue of like, who am I at 30 now that I have access to these different stories and these different ideas of who you can be? Like, what are all the options? I love the idea that there are stories that are opening not just new ideas of of what it is to be a young adult, but also what it is to exist on totally different planes of worlds that people are creating, right? The the creativity is so abounding that it, I think, gives young adults right now particularly more variety to see themselves in, right? A story to ground themselves in. And I don't know, this idea of grounding yourself in something, I think, is probably most of the work that I do with teens and young adults. How do I find a sense of meaning in the world around me? How do I find a place for myself? This idea of not feeling like the main character in your own story and how painful that really is to to watch people around you and say, oh, they're, they're the main character and I'm just the like quirky best friend or I'm just the nobody off to the side, but to really centralize themselves as the main character in their story and that their story looks maybe different, but that there is strength and beauty and something so important to be found in that story. Um, How we do this work of centralizing ourselves and how we make it okay to find a story that works for us instead of the story that we've been told we have to live out. All right. Well, I'll drop you off here and pick you up in two weeks, huh? And in the meantime, if someone you love or who you're close to or you yourself are going through a hard time, remember that you can ask for help. We'll have some resources in our episode description. And I hope that you know that I am as excited about your story as I am about anybody else's in the world. This has been... 
Tor presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.